0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back. You are now leaving, not entering the Twilight Zone, here at The Conservative Conscience with Daniel Horowitz, powered by Conservative Review on Westwood One's podcast network. And it is Sunday, a very interesting Sunday. Um, Again, I'm recording a little bit early for the new week. I'm going to be out tomorrow. But I wanted to make sure you guys get some of my take on what has happened over the weekend? Because it's with much trepidation that I try to comment on something that's ongoing, and then everything I say—not that the foundation of what I say isn't true—but it changes, and it always happens when I give Republicans too much credit, not too little credit. I give them too much credit uh, for possibly standing up for one percent of of a principle, and really it's zero percent. So you know, we ended off last week uh, with the premise. That more or less we're going to have a vote and more or less by now, um, you know, and I say it's an interesting Sunday because the deadline for the budget was going to be tonight. You know, Monday would be, this is the first week of October. And that was supposed to be never again, as President Trump said, the last time to take a stand. And of course, That wasn't to be, and conservatives didn't give a darn about that issue. But at least they were going to stand up for Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court pick. And more or less by now, they would have taken the procedural vote, not just in the committee, but on the floor. And pretty much by later, tomorrow, or whatever, they would have had him confirmed, and within hours, he could have been seated on the court. And by the way, that's very important because... Throughout all the talk in the soap opera, the Supreme Court session actually starts now. I mean, this is when the October session starts. This is the first week of the Supreme Court. And it is kind of interesting, just as a side note, that most of the initial cases they're hearing really are nothing burger cases. They're boring. And by the way, that's a good thing. Because, see... The courts are supposed to um, hear boring cases. Okay, that, that that's what they're supposed to hear. Um, you know, one of them is Gundy v. United States. Whether the Federal Sex Offender Registration and Notifications Act Delegation of Authority to Attorney General to issue regulations under a certain statute violates the non-delegation doctrine, you have... Um, uh, gosh, I think, well, what's the first case they're going to hear? Um, it's it, it just, I mean, it, it, it's individual cases and controversies. They're not broadly affecting the country. Now, you might say, well, that's good. Isn't that what the courts are for? Well, here's the joke about it. Meanwhile, the lower courts are hearing all those cases. Now, eventually, some of them trickle up to the Supreme Court. Takes forever. A lot of them don't. A lot of them, John Roberts isn't going to take. So this is the joke. After all this, you're not even going to take the case. You know, um, it was right after I got off the air, taping the Friday show, we saw this breaking news that a judge would actually, not kidding this, a judge actually took the case. This is um, a federal District court judge judge for the District of Columbia, DC, to for Congress, led by I guess it's Senator uh, Vietnam uh, Blumenthal from Connecticut, to sue President Trump, in their words, for violating the emoluments clause. And we're like, come on, no, no one's going to grant standing to that. What senators have an issue with the president? So, so deal with it. Fight, fight that out in the budget bill. Hex Senator Blumenthal, you got everything else you wanted in the budget bill. You just may as well fight Trump on that. What do you want to do with that? What's your what, what are you addressing? What's the grievance? The judge took the case. He said they have standing. He said they have standing. This is Emmett Sullivan. So, you know, there you go. And I just got news for you. Even once Kavanaugh is confirmed, assuming he does wind up getting confirmed at this point, guess what's gonna happen with John Roberts? He's gonna work overtime because he views um Kavanaugh now as political. Guess what? Guess what's gonna happen? He is gonna be reluctant to do anything to overturn lower courts. As Professor Fitzpatrick said on the show a couple months ago, a former Scalia clerk, law professor at Vanderbilt uh, uh, Law School. And by the way, this Judge Emmett Sullivan was initially appointed by George H.W. Bush. So there you go. Just keep in mind, even if you believe that all of Trump's lower court appointments are stellar, which most of them are pretty good, you're coming into an arena where almost all of the you know, circuits, you have a super majority because every Democrat appointee is crazy, and at least half the Republican ones w- w- weren't good either. And that's especially true when you're talking about the D.C. district and the D.C. circuit, which is the most important circuit. That's gone for two generations. So that's not really going to make much of a difference. I mean that's the court that Kavanaugh sits on. But anyway, so it was funny. We ended the show on Friday saying that, you know, and and this this was early in the morning before the news really changed. See, I should have waited a couple hours. I mean, this is what's so hard when the cycle is so fluid. But what happened was Jeff Flake flaked out. And said, well, I'll vote for him in committee, but I'm not going to vote for him on the floor until there's an FBI investigation giving into the ransom of the Democrats. And then, of course, the Democrats are already saying that that that's not good enough. We knew they're going to keep doing that. They're going to keep moving the goalposts. And then guess what? See, really, there's a whole bunch of other rhinos. They all came out of the woodworks. Marco Rubio said he feels comfortable with that and that's what we should be doing. Mitt Romney, who's going to be the next senator from Ruby Red, Utah, said the same thing. By the way, he's going to be the next John McCain. So so much for that. I was prepared to, you know, write a piece and and we started this in the last week's show explaining why just because Republicans finally held the line on the Supreme Court, thinking that they would hold the line um, don't don't give them a pass on everything else because their strength, their commitment on the Supreme Court is not coming from a good place. It's because that's the one political morphine I would call it political fentanyl at this point that numbs and dulls the senses of conservative voters to keep, you know, playing this game on the plantation and then just ignoring the other betrayals and not getting in the president's face, not getting in congressional Republicans' faces, not demanding better candidates, not fighting in primaries, and certainly exploring other options. And then finally, we we spoke about the fact that Republicans are raising the specter of judicial supremacism by frenetically saying how how important the court is. Oh my gosh, it's so important! No, downplay it, downplay it, especially when they're not going to win anyway because the lower courts are um, are not going to get fixed, and that's where almost all these cases are decided, either as last resort or you know for many years. And meanwhile, those lower court decisions already alter the trajectory of policy, like we saw with the so-called travel ban. It got its airing before the Supreme Court, one of the few victories we got, but it was a hollow victory. Because Trump had already changed most of his policies. Now if he wants to expand it, even if he doesn't want to expand it, they're coming back to the lower courts. So it was amazing. I wanted to give them credit For holding the line, but noting how that, you know, we shouldn't allow that to obfuscate the budget betrayal and other things. Healthcare. What about healthcare? Have we forgotten that Republicans have essentially adopted the Democrat view of healthcare? The biggest fiscal, economic issue, liberty issue you can imagine? Have we all forgotten so quickly? It's bizarre. But anyway, they cave on this. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might challenge me and say, Well, Daniel, come on. Most of the mainstream establishment leadership types, you know, were good on this. They would have voted right away. They would have, you know, not given into the ransom on this issue, even if they would given on every other issue. Come on, Daniel, this is a real unifying moment when Kavanaugh was strong. Let, let, let's unite, and I'm all for uniting, but what are we uniting behind? See, there's two problems that we're missing. Number one is if Republicans really were this intrepid and they really recognized that Democrats are so evil in what they do, and, the, and this was really a cathartic watershed moment for them, you would see that on other issues. That's number one. And number two, I understand most of them would have voted to confirm him, but the fact that you have Lisa Murkowski's and Susan Collins's and Jeff Flake's is their fault. I want to get to that in a minute. But first, let's explore the first point. The fact that If this was really a uniting moment, we would see it on other issues. And and I'm going to have an article about this, but I want to build it around this quote. Other establishment types have said similar things, but John Cornyn on Friday's markup, so to speak, was the markup, meaning they voted to um, uh, confirm uh, Kavanaugh, at least at a committee. So Cornyn said several times in his speech, quote, the Democrats have acted cruel, reckless. And they had no sense of decency. He said that two or three times. And I, I have no doubt that he he kind of meant that. But here's the question, John, Big John. Grassley, Hatch, all you guys. Tom Tillis. If you recognize, if you really are looking across that aisle, that that dais, and you see the other people... Across from you, finally, you view them the way they view you, with the disdain that they view you, you view them. You finally see that this is not merely some disagreement over policy, that they are so power-hungry, they are willing to be cruel, reckless, and have no sense of decency in pursuit of those goals. Don't you realize that on every other issue? Don't you realize that on crime? I mean, think about it. We spoke about last week about criminal justice, the hypocrisy of the left on criminal justice, that they're now trying to just dismantle our tough-on-crime regime for people that have been duly convicted of crimes, and yet, in pursuit of power, they want to lynch someone with zero evidence. Hey, Big John. Hey, Grassley. Are you going to immediately suspend your work with these very same fiends, demonic, satanic, SOBs on criminal justice reform are you going to stop agreeing to their premise on healthcare and recognize that that's motivated by by cruelty are you are you going to stop agreeing to their premise on immigration and understand that it's all about the same thing power creating a permanent democrat majority i can't even tell you with all this news cycle how many stories of criminal alien murders I've missed and I wanted to get to, maybe we'll get to later in the week. But where, where is the cathartic moment? I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. Some people are like, wow, I think I think Lindsey Graham really changed he really got it. I'm not seeing it. And don't tell me, oh uh, well, judicial nominees. Yeah, sure. Sure. Judicial nominees. You know, I get it. But that's coming from a bad place because that is used to grease the skids for the other capitulations. Right? I mean, that is something we all need to recognize. And This plays out. This did play out. Again, I'm sorry I recorded this early on Friday. That's why I just want to do a quick show, shorter show, just to start off the week before things heat up again to mention two pieces of news. It was surreal watching Republicans around literally the same hour reluctantly with Flake, confirm him at a committee, but then, you know, agree to the Democrat roadblock on the floor, which we'll see what happens with that. At the same time, President Donald J. Trump, at high noon on Friday, signed into law the budget betrayal bill that jettisoned every one of his priorities, that took every spending cut promise he had and actually increased spending for every program he promised to cut or sometimes eliminate completely out of HHS and education, community block grant programs. This bill, like we said last week, had three riders that were pro-illegal immigration, but no riders to clamp down on any of this. And again, it's like they every one of them, Lankford, I mean, even the more conservative ones, they eat out of the hands of the Democrats. Yes, yes, we have to make sure we reunite the families. We have to make sure we're, we're nice to them. Do you buffoons not realize it's the same cruelty behind what they're doing to Kavanaugh is what they're doing on immigration? Do you not understand that? But Trump signs it. Trump promised never again. Never again. And I've been yelling about this for six months, trying to build a movement behind it. Jim Jordan's the only one who spoke out. And nothing. The president was able to get away with this. Without a peep from conservatives, no one, no one raised a, a, a their voice. Tell me, is there anything Republicans can do aside from the Supreme Court? And even then, they might not wind up confirming him. and And I, I, I really question whether they'll face any backlash. And again, don't sit and tell me, Daniel. Or uh, do you mean I shouldn't vote for Republicans in November? Do what you want. But do more. It's not just, it's so lazy to limit activism to, okay, what are you going to do in the voting booth every two years when it's the most important election of our time? And each one's the most important election of our time. But what are you going to do in between? You do have a voice. I always tell everyone that if, the phony conservative groups that steal money to do nothing and raise money from do- naive donors to do a bunch of nothing with it, if they would galvanize their lists and voters to flood the White House and their members of Congress with, with protests about different policies, that is more impactful than voting. Voting is over 100 million people. This you actually, I mean, this is how the left succeeds in you know getting transgender bathrooms in every single county in America. It's a, it's a relatively small group of people, but they pinpoint the leverage and the legislative uh, outcome and, and and how to get that outcome, and they flood the zone. We could be doing that. All these, all my colleagues that um are for you know in it for self promotion rather than for a cause, they could get on Fox News, all these shows that Trump watches and one after another bash the budget bill and say, Trump promised he wouldn't sign it, you better veto it, man. I can guarantee you he'd veto it. He doesn't like that backlash. He's very sensitive to it, and I think that's a good thing. But we don't use it. We just don't use it. We don't care. Did anyone call him out for his never again promise? To me, that should be the conservative read my lips moment. But we just don't care because we're, we're all hooked on this political fentanyl to, to dull our senses. And don't give me this, oh, this was a dramatic week because you, you know as well as I do that they were ignoring it even before the allegations came out. For six months, no one but me cared about the budget bill. And even without this, it wouldn't have been more than a footnote. Now it wasn't even a footnote, so maybe it would have been a footnote on the conservative media news cycle. After the fact, of course. So he signed it into law. But then there was another thing. The Hill.com is reporting, we'll link to this in show notes, that Trump and his son Don Jr., who I think genuinely, as much as he could intellectually understand conservatism, considers himself a conservative... he signaled that he will support kevin mccarthy for speaker so not only is he betraying us he's not even looking for a better day like oh the next time the next time <laughs> even though this is the sixth budget betrayal like but the seventh is a charm you know it's, it's funny republicans are like what do you want a seventh fbi investigation to net that the first six didn't reveal well it's like what do you want a seventh budget deadline to you know net in terms of conservative results that the first six didn't Okay, but you can only strive for a better day if you push for better House leadership. Now, God forbid, should Trump ever support Jim Jordan? No, that would be too much to ask. Even though he's willing to go up against incumbents when he wants to, like with Mark Sanford. But just stay out of it, stay neutral then. I mean, again, this is a preliminary report, but this is an all hands on deck moment to their credit, Freedom Freedom Works is really working with Jim Jordan. And you know, I've disagreed with them. They're more libertarian than me. They're pushing this week on crime stuff, but but I, you know, I give them a lot of credit for, for working this issue. Very few others are. Very few others are. Why do we let them get away with it? I just don't get it. I don't understand it. It's like He's literally doing everything that embodies the Jeb Bush stuff that that people didn't want. And, you know, one of my adages for you longtime listeners is the only thing worse than us getting screwed is for us to get screwed and no one to know about it. And... You know, I feel the service that I provide is that if I can't stop it, at least I could rally everyone against it. So over time, we'll maybe build a movement and that will eventually be able to stop stuff like this, even if we can't do it now. But what I'm finding is we've actually slid backwards. We can't get anyone engaged on anything other than what the media tells us to get engaged over. And then everything always comes down to that fight. And I was like, "Well, Daniel, but but you know, if Democrats win, then it'll be this." But I'm like, "Do you, do you understand that this is coming from a position of weakness? This lesser of two evils what it's done to us?" Let let's use our analogy from from last week. You have a f- football field, but let's say it's not 100 yards, it's almost infinite. And you you've given up an infinite number of yards to to the Democrats and you're now at yard number 5,300,468. And you could make a big fight over you know that one yard. But no one ever steps back to think like we only got to that 5,300,000th yard because we seeded 5,300,000 yards so that it's enabled them to even get to this point. What's our strategy? And they're going to probably win that anyway. Same thing here. The only fight on Supreme Court nominee is because they give the Democrats what they want in every other issue. And then even on the courts, they're not fighting fundamentally on it. They fully agree in judicial supremacism. They just say, we want our guys on the court. And then even their guys, I mean, say what you want about Kavanaugh. He's certainly a lot better than what the Democrats would offer. But he will not rule a true originalist constitution he's just not almost few will I mean Clarence Thomas is the most he won't do that unless this was some sort of cathartic experience for him but I I, I wouldn't assume it you know not in terms of of his um you know his jurisprudence maybe in terms of his social circles he'll change who he hangs out with. But this is where we are. We couldn't even enjoy what we thought. We had this unifying moment, which again, wouldn't unify us under anything else and be, serve as a springboard for them to recognize that these are Democrats are people we can't work with on other issues, and we should actually have our own agenda that stands on its own merits that doesn't always serve as, you know within the paradigm of the left. But no, they caved. And that's why I want to explain the other thing I said before. A lot of people might be saying, look, I understand Dan- Daniel, you have issues with McConnell, but look McConnell's tried to hold the line on Garland on the courts on you know when he when he cares, which isn't on too many issues, but the few issues he does care. Um, you know, he's fighting and you know his mainstream Republicans, which are most of them are easily willing to confirm him. It's really just a few guys. So we need a bigger Senate majority. Here's what you don't understand, if, if that is your thought process. We only have people like Flake, Collins, and Murkowski in the Senate in the first place, and we only have people like that that feel they could be wayward loose cannons because of the broader culture of capitulation that McConnell, Cornyn, and all these guys have sowed and fostered. For so many years. Democrats would never think about doing this because you can't do this. Can you imagine even the Democrats from the reddest of red states like Joe Manchin voting against a Democrat nominee? Right, He wouldn't do it. He voted for Kagan and Sotomayor, even though they're antithetical to West Virginia values. Can you imagine that? No. Because the Democrats are a real political party. So I understand that McConnell screws us on 90% of the issues, but on 10%, such as judicial nominees, he really wants to fight. But you can't decompartmentalize it that way. Because if you create a culture of capitulation 90% of the time where the Democrats are the sun and Republicans are the moon – or where Democrats are the Earth and Republicans are the Moon, they orbit around the Democrats. They work within their paradigm, within their premises, within their thought process, their convictions, their principles, their talking points, albeit maybe a little different, sometimes not different that, that at all. That every time Democrats give a demand, there's people at the border. Families, families. Oh yes, and then you know all the Republicans. Not not just Flake, but McConnell and Grassley and all these people on down. Yes, yes, we need to reunite. Yes, yes, uh, uh pre existing conditions, yes, yes. Uh, so yes, so when it comes to even judicial nominees that you guys want to stand up, don't be surprised that you have wayward members that are so used to a culture. Where every time the Democrats and the media work together, especially when it involves something as sensitive as women and identity politics, you better believe they're gonna do it. And you know, I said before. Remember, I warned. I warned about this. I want. I want to remind you guys. This was just a few weeks ago. Remember that Ninth Circuit judicial nominee, where he was actually really solid, and not not it wasn't even flakin and, and Collins. It was Marco Rubio and Tim Scott from South Carolina said, oh, he had racially tinged writings. And we lost that nominee because of them. And I said, now Democrats know how to pick your lock, and they're going to do it with even Supreme Court picks. And it's funny, because even you see Rubio, he didn't say anything up front, but once Jeff Flake kind of did the rhinoism for him, he rhinoed along with him. But that's what I'm telling you. you. You can't tell me like, Oh, I'm going to run an entire party with no philosophy. But then, the few times I want to fight, don't blame me for the people who are to the left of leadership because, well, it's just a narrow majority and we have these people, we need more seats. You can never have enough seats. If you have 50, let's say instead of 51, you say, okay, I want 54, 55, 56. You're always going to have them. And the proof is in the pudding look at the roster of people we're nominating or we have nominated. In Arizona to fill this seat, Flake seat, <clears throat> Martha McSally. Now she claims she's she's changed a little bit, but you know I'd like to see her talk about immigration, not in the context of an election. She voted for amnesty when she got in there. Some people say she's changed, but you know that's who we have to look forward to. Guess who else we have to look forward to? Mitt freaking Romney from Utah. Really? really this is what we're doing Mitt Romney you got to be kidding me so it's not even like okay we have a couple of old rhinos like you know Lisa Murkowski and um, Susan Collins that are in there from the old regime but now we're not going to make the same mistake forget about a state like Maine we're making the mistake from Utah all sorts of states and frankly, there's not a single one that's stellar. I mean, at best, some of them will be leadership types. But some of them could be to the left of leadership if they wind up winning. <clears throat> which which leads me to another point. It's not just the culture once they're in the Senate. We only have these type of people in the Senate because of McConnell. You guys in this audience remember I had someone named... Joe Miller on this show, not in 2012. A lot of people remember 20 or 2010, the first time he ran and actually won the Republican nomination. Lisa Murkowski ran as a write-in and won, but he challenged her six years later in 2016, and he was smart as a whip. He's a, a great guy. The party wouldn't support it. And look, I understand you're not gonna you're gonna fight conservatives. If we go after leadership types, I, I get it. You're, you're going to protect your own. But the point we made at the time is Murkowski will not even be there for the things leadership wants to do. There's got to be a certain standard. I even if you want to have a big tent, you got to have a standard. The Democrats wouldn't put up with that. They should be working with us in the primaries. We'd gladly give on some if they would at least go after the worst elements that we wouldn't have to fight on our own and have them tear our guys down. And by the way, I just want to point out, you know, I love how establishment Republicans and their establishment conservative thumb-sucking writers are appalled by the treatment of Kavanaugh. I will just tell you, that is what has happened to almost every one of the candidates that we've tried to recruit in primaries. The media... The Democrats and the Republican establishment burned them to the ground and destroyed a lot of their lives. Very personal. I would love for them to learn from that, but of course they won't. So, you know, as Jeremiah Wright said, Obama's old pastor, the chickens coming home to roost. Your culture of capitulation is coming home to roost, buddy. Go eat it. Go eat your Jeff Flakes. There was a guy, Will Cardone, who ran against him, had his own money, self-funded, was polling in the 40s, could have won. He was burned to the ground. Many conservative groups, by the way, got in there on behalf of Flake. Some of us have a long memory. Some of us have a broad array of activism where we follow all the policies, all the budget fights, and the primaries. And that's my challenge to you in the audience, if you're in, like, oh, I got to vote Republican, fine. But what are we doing in the primaries? What are we doing to reform the party at large? What are we doing to change the party? You can't just have Republicans gang rape us for two years, every single two-year increment, and then come to November, oh, I got to vote Republican. Okay, fine. But then what else? What else? What else are you going to do? And that's the irony. It all comes down to November, but the funny thing is, we're going to lose it anyway. You know, as I'm talking to you, I'm seeing news come across the wires that Republicans are canceling. This is the NRCC, National Republican Congressional Committee, responsible for House races, canceling 1.2 million in ads for Congressman Kevin Yoder of Kansas. Now, granted, this is, you know, Kansas City suburbs. So it's, it is the most liberal of the Kansas districts, but still, if you can't even fight that, meaning if you are giving that up, that I mean, that easily gets the Democrats to 25, and there's no que- – the question is, are they going to lose 40, 50, 60, or 70? And they did the same thing in a western Pennsylvania district, uh, Keith Rothfuss. Now, unfortunately, with Congress out, you know their work here is done. They're done. I mean, with, with the exception of the Senate, just for Kavanaugh, whatever happens or doesn't happen there. The House is out. They are gone. This is it. This was the the promise that you had that so many of you are excited about. Two years ago, November, started January. If you remember that, we gave a prescription For them coming in on January 3rd, even before Trump is sworn in, using budget reconciliation to get around the filibuster to pass full repeal of Obamacare, and then put it on his desk when he gets back from the inaugural ball on January 20th, never happened. This is what you get of the two years of Republican control. It's over. It's over with. Oh, now we got to unite and fight for the election. So unite. But I will warn you that there's not enough of you. There's not enough of us. You need, A, the Trump voters, not the traditional base, but the ones that were brought in and motivated to vote, that all signs that I have seen from polling is that they are not turning out. And then also the swing voters, some of the suburban voters that could go either way. Maybe they uh, voted for Reagan. They voted for Clinton. Then they some of them, enough, swung back to Bush, but swung to Obama, but then swung back to Trump. I mean – These are the people you need, and we're losing them in droves. You need an agenda. Yeah, I mean, for the hardcore base, you could keep them on the plantation, scaring them with the Democrats, but it's not enough for the people that we do need to get and we should be getting with sane policies. The people for whom I like to say they might not fully understand what this audience understands, but they know enough that they don't want to embrace Hamas and MS-13 and ban straws. But yet we don't have an agenda speaking to that, distinguishing ourselves from Democrats without all this baggage. So that's pretty bad when they're losing that. So now that they're at a session and we are going to focus on the elections, I'm going to try to give you a breakdown of, you know, some of the demographic polling and everything and what that means policy wise and where we're losing and how we're failing, and just to give an analysis of the map. You know, let me know what you want to see, what you the type of content you want us to put out. We're going to try to analyze state by state, you know, um, House, governor, state legislature, what's at stake, um, where, you know, ours are going to lose to D's and where importantly within the R's, where we're also losing, we're nominating or have nominated more rhinos. So obviously we're not going to lose Utah, but you know, that's Mitt Romney. I'm not a fan of Orrin Hatch at all. I wanted him gone. But it's very likely we're going to go backwards. Which with Mitt Romney, probably certainly we're going to go backwards. That's a loss of a seat. You now I've gotten a lot of comments from some of you guys about Florida, Florida's Senate race, uh, a gubernatorial race. A lot of you are very scared that Florida is a state where Republicans have been winning statewide, really for two decades. There's not a single statewide elected Democrat. Republicans control. Both houses of the legislature. And, you know, there's a lot of concern that there's a socialist leading by seven to 10 points over Ron DeSantis, who is likely our smartest, most articulate conservative candidate. How could that be? Well, this is what happens when you have a wave election, when Republicans are defined by the status quo, plus the scandals, plus all the soap operas, and they have no countervailing narrative to punch through it. You're going to have good guys get swept up. And this is what I warned the Freedom Caucus guys. I said, if you don't distinguish yourself with a new contract for America, new identification, even if you use the Republican ballot line for the ballot access, but you need your own to distinguish yourself. Otherwise, you know it's what Moses warned um, you, know, against the rebellion with Korak, you know, you guys uh, um, join with him, you're going to get swept up with him, and when the Earth swallows him up, you're going to get swallowed up with him. He said, step away from the tents of these wicked people. Unfortunately, you know, I mean, all of our guys didn't step away, so we're going to lose people. I mean, you got him. You got Rod Bloom in Iowa is in big trouble. You got Ted Budd, good guy in North Carolina, he's in trouble. You got, um, obviously, Dave Bratt. You have, oh, what's his name in Pennsylvania? Yeah. Um, you know he was in the York area, but you know the crazy redistricting from that insane Supreme Court they uh, they had there. He's in trouble too. There was some talk of him being the next Freedom Caucus chairman, but you know that's maybe maybe we'll do a piece on that. Just you know the number of Freedom Caucus guys that could go down, the number of, and then you had Ron DeSantis himself, who was a Freedom Caucus guy who retired to run for governor, obviously. And uh, guess what? Guess what? He's gone. He told me himself his seat was filled by a puke or the guy who got the nomination. Now, maybe you could say we made progress in a couple places, Club for Growth got people in, but I don't think we're even on par. We're going to lose. Some to the Democrats and some we already lost to the establishment. Bridenstine's seat. You know, he you know, left in middle to become NASA um, administrator. That seat went to hell. By the way, Scott Perry was the guy from Pennsylvania. Um, good guy, but he's, he's in trouble. He is really in trouble. Pennsylvania is really bad because Republicans nominated a dud for governor there, and they're losing like 15 to 20 to 25 points on the gubernatorial ballot. I mean, this is really bad news. This is no joke. When you lose Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, keep in mind, even though these states, it was a new thing for Trump to win them in the presidential election, but all of the statewide elections were in off years, midterms, and Republicans have been holding them for many, many years. They're going to lose them. They're going to lose redistricting. So, don't give me this business of, oh, you know, we, we, Daniel, you we got to vote Republican. Well, I, I've been trying to help them for a year and a half with a narrative that could have avoided this. It didn't have to be this way. So, at this late hour, just to say, shut up, don't stand for anything, but you got to vote Republican so Democrats don't win. What I'm trying to tell you is that it's circular logic because there aren't enough people that are only motivated by, oh my gosh, we have to vote Republican because I'm terrified of Democrats. It's not 51% of the people. There are a group of people that will get sucked in because they're upset about the status quo for good reason. We shouldn't have to own the status quo. How much of the status quo do you agree with? A couple things on foreign policy that Trump did is good, but you know, a lot of it we don't agree with. Some of it's Trump's fault, so a lot of it's not his fault, but it is what it is. But now Republicans have to own it. So a lot of voters are going to turn to the alternative. Well, there is no alternative other than the party out of power. And that's the Democrats. So unless you motivate them with something, you're not going to get them. So we're going to focus on that a lot more. But we got to think beyond the next election. We got to think beyond that. And that's really what I intend to, God willing, try to develop with the help of all of you in the next couple of weeks, next couple of months. Because otherwise, what this just is, is one giant race to the bottom where it's the lesser of two two evils, the evil of two lessers. And the more debauched the Democrats get, the more debauched Republicans get. And then we're like, well, we can't allow that debauchery to win. So you know here we are. Um, you know, it just reminds me and, and, and I understand why people feel that way. Like I said before, they feel that Democrats have gotten away with so much. and by golly, they just don't care anymore how our side acts. I get that. And actually, to to underscore that, um, I don't know if some of you remember this, but there was this GQ article that came out a little while ago um, detailing how Ted Kennedy and, and Dodd-Frank used to act. And, and a, there were a bunch of stories, and here's just one of them. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, this article came out. But anyway, in December 1985... Just before he announced he would run run for president in in '88. Kennedy allegedly manhandled a pretty young woman employed at Brasserie Brasserie Waitress. The woman, Carla Gaviglio, declined to be quoted in this article but says the following account, a similar version of which first appeared in Penthouse last year, is full and accurate. It is after midnight midnight, and Kennedy and Dodd are just finishing up a long dinner in a private room on the first floor – ...of The restaurant's annex. They are drunk. Their dates, two very young blondes, leave the table to go to the bathroom. <clears throat> Betty Lowe, who served the foursome, also leaves the room. Raymond Campit, the co owner of La Brasserie, tells Gaviglio the senators want to see her. As Gaviglio enters the room, the six foot two, 225 plus pound Kennedy grabs the five foot three, 103 pound waitress. Throws her on the table. She lands on her back, scattering crystal plates and cutlery and the lit candle. Several glasses and a crystal candlestick are broken. Kennedy then picks her up from the table and throws her on Dodd, who is sprawled in a chair with Gavaglio on Dodd's lap. Kennedy jumps on top and begins rubbing his you-know-whats against her, supporting his weight on, on the arms of the chair. As he is doing this, Lo enters the room. She and Gavaglio both scream, drawing one or two dishwashers. Um, startled, Kennedy leaps up. He laughs, bruised, shaken, and angry over what she considered an assault, a sexual assault. Gavaglio runs from the room. Kennedy, Dodd, and their dates leave shortly thereafter, following a friendly argument between the senators over the check. Eyewitness Betty Lowe told me that Kennedy had three or four cocktails in his first half hour at the restaurant and wine with dinner. When she walked into the room after Gavaglio had gone in, she says, what I saw was Senator Kennedy on top of Carla was on top of Senator Dodd's lap, and the tablecloth was sort of slid off the table because the table was knocked over, not completely, but just on Senator Dodd's lap in a little bit. And of course, the glasses and the candlesticks were totally spilled into everything. And right when I walked in, Senator Kennedy jumped off, and he leaped up, composed himself, and got up. And Carla jumped up and ran out of the room. According to Lowe, Kennedy was sort of leaning on Gavic Leo not really straddling, but sort of off balance. So it was like he might have accidentally fallen. He was partially on and off, pushing himself off her to get up. Um, Anyway, you know, and uh, th- there's a whole list of stories in this article. This is where they are. So, I mean... There's there's a lot of room for Republicans to be just as bad and still not be as bad. But the question is, when are we finally going to build a party and a movement that actually conducts itself in a way that is becoming of leadership of America, becoming of God's children, and then also has a vision that works in concert with our constitutional values. That's what I'm committed to at least exploring with your help, with anyone's help who wants to join, because I'm just not doing this once every other year, you know, nonsense every November. Oh, just vote Republican and then forget about all the other garbage we get from both parties in between. It's going to be another big week. But until next time, God bless y'all. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.